If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What foods were eaten at the first Thanksgiving feast? Could the pilgrims have survived their first winter without aid from Native American people? And what is the darker side of Thanksgiving history? In this latest episode in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, Charlotte Hodgman spoke to Rachel Herman to answer your questions and popular search queries on the long history of what is arguably America's favourite tradition. Thanks so much for joining us today. We are recording in the run-up to Thanksgiving. We'll be covering questions that have come in from listeners and also popular Google searches around the topic. But perhaps you could just kind of kick off the interview with, you know, what is Thanksgiving and, and why is it celebrated? So Thanksgiving is what we would call an invented tradition. It is a holiday that was initially made up and has become sort of enshrined in American practices and traditions. So there's really two different origin stories that we could tell about Thanksgiving. One is the 1621 date in which pilgrims sat down with Wampanoags after the harvest. And then the other origin date um, is 1863, when it was officially declared a national holiday. And that 
national holiday really took liberties with creating this history of a shared peaceful past between colonists and indigenous peoples. Okay, so just perhaps if we we kind of stick with the earlier origin story, I've had quite a few questions about that time. What do we know about that first Thanksgiving celebration? So we know quite a lot. We know that the pilgrims were separatists. The separatists believed that the Church of England could only be reformed by migrating somewhere new. So the pilgrims had lived for a little over a decade in Leiden before deciding to migrate to the Americas. They left from Southampton, They stopped at a number of different places on the way. They were originally on the Speedwell and the Mayflower. The Speedwell had seen action against the Spanish Armada by the 1620s. It was not so speedy. It started leaking on the voyage, so colonists stopped in Southampton, Dartmouth, and Plymouth, and they had to decide to combine into one ship, the Mayflower. So they shared the voyage over with each other, with their domesticated animals. Um, We know that their provisions on the voyage spoiled, so the water turned foul, the grain they had brought was full of worms. They really arrived in what they came to call Plymouth with very little. They landed first in Cape Cod. They ended up settling this colony in Plymouth. We know that about half of the 102 colonists died during the first winter. They arrived too late to plant crops or build houses, so they spent the winter on ship. So in the spring, they had already interacted to some extent with indigenous people from afar, but it was really in the spring that they met two people, Samoset and a man named Tisquantum, um, who's better known as Squanto. And through Tisquantum's interactions, the colonists were introduced to the main Wampanoag leader named Massasoit. Tisquantum showed colonists how to produce crops, and colonists managed to produce a harvest sometime toward the end of the year. We don't really know when, but we know that they um, captured some waterfowl. We knew that they had a minimal harvest of grain. We knew that they sat down to enjoy this harvest meal and In so doing, the colonists agreed to discharge their guns, which is what you do when you're announcing a sort of celebration. This drew the attention of Massasoit, who arrived with several dozen other people. They sort of saw the paltry feast that colonists had set themselves. They disappeared from the settlement, and they came back with a number of freshly killed deer. So indigenous peoples ended up providing colonists with the bulk of the feast, which was said to go on for about three days. We've had a lot of questions across social media about the the food that was eaten. Toria Gray on Instagram wanted to know, is kind of what is now traditional Thanksgiving food as traditional as we we might think it is? So I think what is traditional actually varies a ton depending on what your family tradition is, but also what region of the U.S. you're from. I think a couple of years ago, the New York Times produced a map 
that explained which sides are most popular in certain areas of the country. And so depending on where you're from, you might have sweet potato pie, you might have pumpkin pie, you might have cranberry sauce, you might be part of a family that just decants the cranberry sauce from the can and serves it on the table with the ridges still in it. The first one does appear to potentially involve wild turkeys, but venison was definitely eaten. So turkeys have been a, a slower introduction than we might think. And there's really interesting things happening with turkeys and Thanksgiving imagery sort of toward the end of the 19th century. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Who made the feast? Because, I mean, there weren't many women, were they, in the settlement? So who actually sort of would have made the feast? There would have been more women in Plymouth than there were, for example, at Jamestown further to the south in Virginia. And it's really difficult to say what indigenous women were present at the gathering because it wasn't recorded. But we do know from other sources and other scholarship that women tended to be present during peaceful meetings, celebrations, and alliances. So it would have been strange if women hadn't been at the shared feast. Native American women were the ones responsible for agriculture and crop production. So any grain brought by Wampanoags and their allies to the feast would have been prepared and produced by women. And I think as far as the colonists were concerned, we could expect women to do the preparation 
of the food, but it would have been more likely for men to have hunted the birds that were served and potentially women and children might have been the ones responsible for gathering any shellfish. Okay. I've had a, a question on Instagram asking, did the Indigenous peoples already have kind of Thanksgiving harvest kind of festivals or ceremonies prior to this? Yes. Across North America, there were harvest celebrations that involved Green Corn Festival, where you celebrated the first of the crops coming into ripeness and sort of giving thanks for what had been produced. But there were also, depending on the year, multiple seasons for planting and harvesting. And I think it's important to also underscore that Native American people moved seasonally to different places. So in addition to harvesting and feasting, it would have been expected that you might move somewhere new for winter to quarters that were more hospitable. Another Instagram question, quite an interesting one, actually, is would the colonists have survived without aid from the indigenous peoples? No, I don't think they would have. They arrived without crops. They arrived without housing. They needed to squantum to show them how to grow corn because they weren't super familiar with it. Tisquantum's knowledge is very interesting to talk about because he had been kidnapped and made captive and trafficked to Spain. He made his way back to England. Scholars think that it was in England that he was shown how to use fish as a form of fertilizer. So this is something that he introduced back to colonists in Plymouth. Thinking about fertilizer wasn't necessarily something that Wampanoags would have needed to do previously because they didn't use plow agriculture and this limited soil disturbance and allowed for longer term production. So Tisquantum's knowledge was crucial in helping colonists to survive. The gifting of venison, again, really necessary to survive. But in addition to supplying colonists with food is the fact that colonists ended up signing a treaty of alliance with Massasoit, the leader of the Wampanoags. And this alliance and protection also allowed the colony to be much more secure than it would have otherwise been. All that said, the colony did have a couple of really difficult few years. There's evidence from William Bradford's accounts of a colonist who went out to gather shellfish and got stuck in the mud and froze and they didn't find him until the springtime. So it was really difficult. Mortality rates were pretty high and colonists were at this point guests on indigenous land. Did the indigenous people, did they continue to help the colonists after that first feast? They did. I would say relations remained pretty peaceful for about a decade. And then the Great Migration happened and many, many, many more colonists started arriving. And once it became clear how much land colonists sought, a number of wars broke out over the fact that colonists were so very land hungry. That, that actually brings me to kind of a popular question. Is there kind of like a darker side to Thanksgiving history? 
I think the darker side relates to the second origin story of Thanksgiving, which is the way that it became a national holiday in the context of the Civil War. So the 1840s, 1850s um, were a very tense time in the United States. And a woman named Sarah Josepha Hale, who was a Vassar graduate, she was the editor of a publication called Godey's Ladies Book, began a sort of campaign trying to make Thanksgiving a national holiday on the third Thursday in November. She had this sort of rehashed history of what happened with the pilgrim. She had a list of foods that she thought people should consume. And she ultimately, through her campaign, convinced Abraham Lincoln to declare the day a national holiday in 1863. The darker side of that history is the fact that it was a contentious declaration and that numerous southern states refused to celebrate it. Some of the southern states declared Thanksgiving on different dates. Some just refused. They called it a damn janky holiday. And after the Civil War, during the period of Reconstruction, you didn't really see Thanksgiving being celebrated in the South throughout this time. The interesting, darker thing that happens is in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, we begin to see the publication of very racist cartoons that depict um, African Americans stealing turkeys or eating very paltry turkeys or appearing as caricatured sort of figures. And as these cartoons are being published, um, as people are circulating them, and as Reconstruction sort of comes to a close through the introduction of Jim Crow laws, this is really the time that the South starts to recognize Thanksgiving as its own holiday. Once white Americans have implemented more racist laws restricting the political activity and involvement of people of African descent. So this emergence of a national holiday becomes a way for white Americans to kind of reconcile a national past while pushing aside people who they see as not belonging. Kristen Finch on Facebook wanted to know, when did Thanksgiving gain national popularity? When when was its kind of peak? I like to think about Norman Rockwell's painting, Freedom from Want. This is the image of a family sitting around a table um, with this patriarch figure gesturing toward this very bronzed, beautiful looking turkey. Um, I think sort of early 20th century, as the Depression is getting underway, people sort of start to mythologize and romanticize this idea that everyone should deserve an annual feast to celebrate. A popular search question is, is why Thursday for Thanksgiving? I think that was just part of the suggestion from Sarah Josepha Hale and ultimately what Lincoln declared. I think, you know, if you're an American, it's sort of nice because it means you get the Thursday and the Friday off. So I think it's just also convenient for people traveling to be with family. And what's the religious element to to Thanksgiving? I think it depends a lot on, on how you grew up and what your family is used to be doing. It can be very kind of non-denominational where everyone goes around the table and says what they're thankful for. So it's a sort of spiritual, self-reflective sort of thing. But I have family and relatives who live in Oklahoma. They're a, a group of Jewish people and Jews on Thanksgiving in Oklahoma City go bowling for salamis. 
it's not particularly religious, but it's something that the community does that is just a weird sort of celebration. What would you say are the top five Thanksgiving traditions? Number one, you either undercook the turkey or you set it on fire and the fire department needs to come. Then someone is going to need a nap. Lots of people might need a nap. The tradition that my partner's family observes is when the turkey comes out of the oven, everyone gathers around and picks up all the skin and eats the skin off the turkey while it's still hot and crispy. And I think now that I live here, it's become traditional to have Friendsgiving because, of course, we don't have the Thursday off. And so it's good to get together and to celebrate with people. But again, I think everyone's Thanksgiving traditions really change and vary a lot depending on where in the U.S. they live. I haven't met anyone who goes bowling for Thanksgiving, but that's what my family tradition is when I'm over there. Why do you think Thanksgiving is so big in the US still, almost more than Christmas? I think it is a little bit less religious and it therefore fits the sort of multicultural background that the United States strives for. So more people can celebrate it. It's a national holiday, so people get the day off. I think there's also through line in American food history in which Americans like to eat in large quantities and Thanksgiving sort of um, gives people permission to celebrate in a gluttonous sort of way. And just to kind of finish the interview, how will you be celebrating Thanksgiving this year? Well, first, I'm going to have a little stock of the online grocery stores because it's actually very difficult to get a turkey in this country before Christmas. So first up, I'll figure out who's selling a frozen turkey and make enough room in my fridge to defrost it over four or five days. I usually spatchcock the turkey, um, which is where you take out the backbone and open it so it cooks faster so you don't end up burning or undercooking the, the turkey. Because I'm American, I will cook it on the barbecue with a spice rub. This is following J. Kenji Lopez-Alt's uh, The Food Lab, um, where he recommends cooking it that way. Um, and it, it's always very quick, and it means you don't have to try and jigsaw your way with all the sides. So turkey, I will probably make a key lime pie, probably make stuffing outside of the bird, gravy with the giblets, and then jalapeno cornbread, which reflects the time I spent living in Texas. And I also like to do a couple infused bourbons where you infuse bourbon with vanilla beans and you toast pecans and stick the pecans in the bourbon. And that's a nice way to end dinner before moving on to cheese. Lovely. Well, that sounds delicious. And I hope you don't undercook your turkey. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that was Rachel Herman, Senior Lecturer in Modern American History at Cardiff University. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.